What a great time we have this morning to open the Word of God together. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn in into Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke, we are now in Luke chapter 4, and we are encountering the effect of the Gospel through the ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ. Sometimes we don't think about the ministry of Christ in that way, and yet it is a gospel ministry. Here is Jesus Christ preaching and teaching and going throughout the nation of Israel, teaching about Himself, about the gospel, the good news of Himself. This morning, we are going to begin to look at verses 31 through 44. That is a, a large section of the narrative of Luke chapter 4. But it, we have to kind of look at it as a, as a whole, although we're not going to cover everything in it this morning. We need to at least read it as a whole because all of the events that are happening here in Luke chapter 4 are part of just one 24-hour period in the ministry of Jesus. This is a day in the life of Christ, a day in the life of His ministry. And what is on display is the authority of Jesus Christ as the living gospel. The authority of Jesus Christ as the living gospel. So as we begin, I want to read for us these verses, 31 through 44, and then we'll get into them in greater detail. Beginning in verse 31, And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and as was, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. There was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him without doing any harm. And amazement came upon all, and they began discussing with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The report about him was getting out to every locality in the surrounding district. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made request of him on her behalf. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately arose and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God! And rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. And when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place, and the multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's bow before the Lord, ask Him to bless His Word as we've heard it and as we will walk through it. Father, we thank You that Your Word is given to us by the wisdom of Your own nature and character and mind, that it is the exact representation of all that You accomplished, that You have given to us just what we need to know about You and about our Savior Jesus Christ and all that He accomplished. Lord, may it be an impactful reality upon our lives that we would live for You, that we would submit ourselves to what Your Word tells us, that we might emulate our Savior whom we love. 
So use it by the power of your Spirit in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You surely remember from our time last Lord's Day that Jesus had come back to his hometown of Nazareth. And as was his custom, he went to teach in the synagogue. That's what it said back in verse, the, the beginning verses of this chapter. Jesus reports back and he goes into the synagogue that he might teach them. And it was from his teaching that the true heart of the people are being exposed. It's from his teaching that what they understand about the Messiah and who the Messiah is, is being challenged. It is being uncovered. It is being exposed. And not only are they doubting who he was, but by their very doubt, they are rejecting him as the Messiah. Therefore, they are rejecting not just him, but they are rejecting his message. They were, in fact, so enraged by what he had said and the implications of what he was preaching to them out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, that they wanted to kill him. Thankfully, I've never preached a message with that kind of impact. That people wanted to kill me. People certainly at times don't want to be around me, and I can understand that for a whole lot of reasons. If you knew everything about my sin-sick heart, you probably wouldn't want to be around me anyway. But this is the Word of God. Thankfully, I haven't had anyone want to kill me. Jesus did, just by one message in His hometown, the people that supposedly knew Him well and liked Him, even in His growing up years. And we learned in that, that that is what the Gospel does. This is what the truth of the gospel does in the heart of man. It confronts the self-autonomy of men. Human beings, each and every one of us prior to Christ, we all have a self-autonomy issue. We all have a problem with self-autonomy. Not that self-autonomy itself is a problem, but self-autonomy is our problem. The fallen man in his own heart loves to rule self. He loves to call the shots. He loves to be the one who rules. The heart of man without Jesus Christ will have no authority over it. And so the whole idea and concept of self-rule is antithetical to the gospel. This is why so many outright reject the gospel. It's not because there's a problem with the gospel. It isn't even because the messenger of the gospel may not know the gospel as well as maybe they could know the gospel. And therefore, therefore their words aren't as clear maybe as they could be if they knew the gospel better. The reason men reject the gospel is because they love self. The gospel calls for absolute submission to Jesus Christ. You must die to self. That kind of repentant submission can only come where self-autonomy is laid aside. And I find it very interesting to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, the most prepared, perfect, in every way, preacher that ever walked the face of the earth. I find it interesting when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, particularly from the perspective of where Jesus begins to preach the gospel. When we think of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we think about the ministry of evangelicalism in our world and evangelism and how we evangelize today, we think about going out to the lost world. That's where our heart resonates to go outside the church, to take the gospel outside to the people who don't go to the church. We tell our neighbors and we tell our friends about Jesus Christ. We tell them about the gospel. We tell them about who Jesus is, and we should do that. That is obedience to the Word of God. God tells us that we are to go into all the world and make disciples. What's interesting to me is that when Jesus goes into all the world to make disciples, 
When Jesus begins his ministry, he begins it in the church of the day. Jesus goes to the church. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. He begins with the religious people, with the outwardly religious people. He begins with the church people. He begins with those who claim to know God, with those who believe that they are doing the right thing, that they are righteous in and of themselves. Jesus goes to the church. We saw this last Lord's Day in our study. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The news about him spread throughout the whole surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues. Began teaching in their synagogues. Over in verse 31, we see the same thing. And he came down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. That's the Sabbath day worship which happened in the synagogue. That's why he was speaking a message. He was teaching them in the synagogue. In verse 38, we see the same thing. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and he is teaching around the area. Notice verse 44, he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Certainly wasn't the only place that Jesus taught that he shared the truth concerning himself with the people. In fact, chapter 5 says that even while he was transitioning from one location to another location, he healed some and spoke truth to them. So even while Jesus is transitioning from Galilee to go to another area. He's talking to the people as he is going. And yet, even with all of that, we see an emerging reality in the ministry of Jesus Christ is that he first begins with those who think they're okay. He goes to the religious. That's interesting to me because that is not how we tend to think as Christians. Far too often we think of evangelism as an outside event, as an away event, as something away from the church. Sometimes we even say we should have on the, the back doors of the church, you're now entering the mission field. As we walk out, we read those words, we're now entering, the, well, there's some truth to that. And yet at the same time, if we understand the reality of a man's heart, if we understand the reality of who we are as people, there are people within the church who are not saved. People within the church who are around the church who need to know Jesus Christ. One of my mentors said, bright lights attract a lot of bugs. Where there's light, there's people who need Christ. Somehow we get the idea in our minds that anyone who goes to church or all the people who are part of a church somehow in some way understand the gospel. It's clear from the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that the church needs the gospel. And so Luke is magnifying Christ. He's magnifying his absolute authority as the living gospel, and he begins it in the church. Two times here, in fact, in these verses that we're looking at, he tells us of the reality of Jesus Christ's authority. Notice verse 32 I'll start with 31 since it's one sentence. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Over in verse 35 and 36, Jesus rebuked him, saying, that is the the demon, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out without doing him any harm, and amazement came upon them and all, or became upon all, and they began discussing with one another, what is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. This is Christ's absolute authority as the living gospel on display. This is 
God fulfilling just what the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus Christ. God is attesting about Jesus Christ as to who He is and His authority over all things. This is Jesus Christ's authority on display as the living gospel. It is an authority, by the way, that you notice evokes two different responses. Two different responses. On the one hand... In our text, there is a human response, and that human response, sadly, is just human amazement about Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, there is reverent obedience to the words of Christ, and it comes from those who we would think wouldn't obey Jesus at all. The response of many in Capernaum is just human amazement as they grapple with what is happening and with what Jesus says, and yet the response of the demonic forces is reverent obedience. You say, reverent pastor? Yes, we'll get into that. You'll understand it here in a moment because they already know who Jesus is. They know who He is. In fact, I need to say, just maybe as a side note, this is always You mark that down. This is always the response of the demonic forces when Christ is around. They are in such fear. By fear, we mean reverence, right? Reverence equals terror or fearful praise, a respect, an honoring praise. They are in terror, that is their fear, because of the power of the deity they have encountered. They are in reverent obedience to Christ. The demons are so fearful of who He is that they cannot keep silent about Him. In other words, they are so terrified that their natural response is to loudly speak the truth about Christ. They are unable, let me just say this, they are unable, think about this, this is the demon world, the demon world is unable to remain silent when Christ is in their presence, unless Christ says, don't talk. Over in... Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3 and verse 11, it says that whenever unclean spirits beheld Him, they would fall down before Him and cry out saying, You are the Son of God. Wouldn't it have been interesting in our vernacular if after that it just said, Duh. Luke chapter 8, there's a man from the same region Turn over to Luke chapter 8 for a minute. There's a man from the same region up in Galilee. And it says in verse 26 and following, they sailed to the country of the Gezerines, or the Gerasenes, I'm sorry, which is opposite Galilee, so it's across the lake. And when he had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons. This isn't just one demon. This guy's got multiple. Who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not even living in a house, but in the tombs. He was living with the dead. And seeing Jesus, he cries out and falls before him and says in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This is what demons do when they encounter Christ. They cannot just sit back and remain silent. They must identify who He is. They they know who He is. They must tell all around who Jesus is. We have to realize this as we begin. This is always the response of the demonic realm when it encounters God. This text gives us several reasons for that. And it's interesting how those reasons parallel the reality of who Jesus Christ is by His very innate nature and how we ought to respond to Christ. 
Before we get to those reasons, I I want us to see the reality of two different responses to Jesus Christ's authority to the living gospel. Two different responses to, to his authority. One is mere amazement. And that amazement only leads to further discussion, further curiosity. The other is fearful reverence that's followed by the direct and immediate obedience to the command of Christ. Now let's just set the scene a little bit here. Verse 31 says, He came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were amazed at His teaching, for His message was with authority. Capernaum was a city northwest of, on the section of the Sea of Galilee, about probably two and a half miles from where the Jordan River enters the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It was a well-known city, population of about 10,000 people at the time when Jesus would have been walking the earth. Part of its popularity as a city was that it was on a major trade route that ran through Israel from the east to the west. And it was also the place where the Romans would collect taxes from people who were passing through. So it was a a large military garrison that was there. There were a lot of Roman soldiers there. Because of that very reason, they would be dispatched as part of the tax collection agency. And because it was located by the Sea of Galilee, it was known as as a fishing village. A lot of fishermen would have lived there. It says, notice that Jesus came down to Capernaum. He came down to Capernaum. Why would he come down to Capernaum? Because Nazareth was several hundred feet above Capernaum, above sea level. And so Jesus would literally go down to Capernaum from Nazareth. And it is here, and also in Matthew 4.13, tells us that he began to even reside there for a short time. Now, just another side note, lest we think that because Jesus lived in Capernaum for such a short time and did all these miracles in Capernaum and and all these things, that there would be a great revival in Capernaum and all these people would come to know Christ because they saw all these grand miracles that Jesus Christ had done. That's not so. That's not so. Jesus actually, in Matthew chapter 11, pronounces judgment upon Capernaum because of its refusal to believe upon him for salvation. Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, just listen. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, because if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have, rem- it would have remained to this day. You understand the implications of that. Sodom was part of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rains down fire from heaven and burns them because of their sinfulness. And Jesus is saying, listen, Capernaum, you're worse than that. Simply because you would not pay attention to what was happening in your midst. You just brushed it aside. He says, nevertheless, in Matthew 11, verse 24, nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Christ comes into Capernaum, the village of Nahum, that's what the word means, Capernaum, and it says he was teaching them on the Sabbath. This is the synagogue. He is, goes to the synagogue. The synagogue was the community gathering place. It was the place where the townspeople, the Jews would go on on particularly the Sabbath day, but really throughout the week because this is where they were taught during the course of the week. They would go there with disputes. They would go to those religious leaders who were in charge that that week. Maybe there was a priest in town for the synagogue. You didn't need a priest. It wasn't the temple. That's where the priests were. But the synagogue would have someone who was over it. And so this is the place where those disputes were handled, but also, and more importantly, and probably most importantly, it was the place where worship happened on the Sabbath. And as we saw last week, on a a typical synagogue day, the Sabbath, they would be prayers that they would offer, they would read from the Old Testament Scriptures, they would... uh, 
have someone else do some teaching, some qualified man who was there would teach. And of course, Jesus, being someone well-known, someone who had gone around teaching already, would have certainly been asked to teach. And so Christ begins to teach in the church. He continually goes into the synagogue and he speaks. You notice that's the same way Paul approached ministry. All through Acts, Paul goes into these places and he goes into the synagogue, unless, of course, it was a place that didn't have a synagogue like like he did in Athens. So Christ enters Capernaum, and it's the place of gathering. It is the synagogue. He begins to teach the people about himself. He begins to teach the people. He is the living gospel. He's there to explain to them what the Old Testament scriptures say about himself. And the first response that the people give are amazement at his teaching. Verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching. Amazed. The word in the original language just simply says they're they're completely astonished at what he is saying. Luke doesn't go into the in the text to tell us all that Jesus said. We, we got that in Nazareth, what he read from the Scriptures. Here it doesn't tell us what he talked about. We could speculate that it might have been similar to what he taught just a few days ago in Nazareth. But we don't know exactly. But we know this, whatever he said, and however he went about to explain what he was saying, they were completely shocked. They were stunned. Why? Why was his word so stunning to them? Well, the text tells us it was because his message was with authority. He spoke as one with authority. And if you look over in Mark's gospel at the similar account, it says, not as the scribes spoke. In other words, not like their normal teachers in the synagogue. Jesus spoke as one having authority. In other words, what Jesus says and how Jesus says it is unlike anything that they have heard. We would think that the religious leaders of the day would have taught some kind of authority, that they would have had at least some sense of authority before the people. You'd think that their teaching carried some kind of spiritual weight some kind of sense in which they said, this is what the Scriptures say, this is the impact of the Scriptures upon us, and the hearts and the lives of the people would resonate with that, that it would have exhorted the will of the people. But it seems rather clear that when the people heard Jesus teach, when they heard this one come whom they knew, who spoke in such a way, His was with an authority that they had never heard before. When the other religious leaders taught, they said things and opinions that were based upon others' opinions. It was man's opinions from man's point of view. But when Jesus spoke, it was with words like this. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Jesus could have said, the scribes tell you and read the Scriptures that The Scriptures say, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, that's a whole higher authority. That is one who is is now coming to the Word of God and saying, this is what the Word of God means by what it says. Jesus' words are divine declarations about the Word of God. They are not human speculations about the Word of God. They are not important suggestions. These are declarations. Jesus made declarative statements of truth that were absolute. No wiggle room, no changing, no shaving off. Expectations and absolutes that left no room for squirmily wiggling out of the truth. Luke says Jesus' message was with Authority. It's the word exousia. Exousia. You see that same word again in verse 36. For with authority, 
And it's linked with another word, power, dunamis. That does not mean dynamite. That is dynamic. It's ability. Jesus has the exousia and the dunamis. Exousia is the idea that one has the inherent reality of power. They have the power to do what they say and Dunamis is the ability to do what they say. So here is Jesus Christ speaking with not only the power to fulfill the words that he's speaking, but the ability to fulfill the words that he's speaking. And that's why they say, for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits to come out. He doesn't just say to some unclean spirit, hey, come out of that guy and the unclean spirit, well, let me think about that. I think I'll do that. Well, maybe not. Is it good for me today? I don't know. No, the unclean spirit does what Jesus says. Why? Because Jesus has the authority and the ability. He has the power and the ability to do what he's saying. So power, Jesus is the only one, beloved, in the human realm with exousia, with inherent power. The only one. The same words are found at the end of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus finishes his preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, in which he continually proclaims, in essence, if you look at the entire Sermon on the Mount, this is what you have heard the Bible says. Well, let me tell you what it means by what it says. Right? This is what you've heard. These are the implications of what the Bible means by what it's saying. That's authority. He is claiming divine authority. And the people are amazed that he would claim that because he speaks as one having that authority. They're completely amazed. In other words, in our day, they are panicked by what he's saying. They're panicked by what he's saying. Why? Because he is so unlike any of the teachers that they have ever heard before. His teaching was absolute. His teaching was concrete. His teaching was reasonable. His teaching was essential. It was clear. It was full of conviction. It was truth about himself. And it was teaching that demonstrated and demanded an immediate response. In other words, there were no suggestions in what Jesus taught. There were no, you know, this might be good for your life. There were no suggestions about taking this road or that road as if one road is better than others. There was the narrow road and there was the wide road and there were declarations about who is on those roads. There were no suggestions. There were only declarations that are black and white. There were declarations and commands so that those who heard are faced with an immediate dilemma. Jesus speaks, and immediately there's a dilemma that goes off. Am I going to obey, or am I going to disobey? Those are the only two options. Accept Him, or reject Him. There is no other option. If the people were to be saved, they must obey what Jesus said. You cannot simply remain in the realm and in the state of amazement to remain simply amazed and reject the message of Jesus Christ and therefore you reject the messenger. There is no option like that. You either accept Jesus Christ for who He is and what He is and how He says it and how He explains it, that the gospel is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, or you reject everything about Him. 
It is no different back in the day when Jesus preached in the synagogue than it is today. You cannot have a salvation without submission to Jesus Christ. You must die to self. Sadly, many of the people that Jesus preached to remained amazed at his authority. They remained amazed. Why? Because his authority as the living gospel demands obedience and they love their self-autonomy. And the following example vividly portrays his power over the realms of darkness that we would say would never obey Jesus, proving that he's the only one to be obeyed. And if he's not obeyed, there is no salvation. Look at what it says. Verse 33, and there was a man in the synagogue There's someone in the church listening to the words of Jesus. Jesus is teaching. His message has authority. People of the place understand the implications of what He's saying. They are amazed at the authority with which He speaks. And there's a man in the synagogue who's possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. I I think it's interesting that God puts His Word to us in that way. Because he says it's an unclean spirit. A demon of an unclean spirit. Aren't, they, aren't all demons unclean? That seems funny to me, that adjective. They're not clean. Well, this is a, a demon possessing a man, and he cries out with a loud voice. The word he there, the pronoun he, describes both the man and the demon. And yet it's more the demon than it is the man. This is the demon using the man's body to accomplish what the demon wants. He cries out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Nobody had to introduce Jesus to this man. He knew. Why? Because the demon knew. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebukes him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him without doing him any harm. The response of the people in the presence of God is panic. Panic that simply results in further curiosity. Almost like a sideshow at the circus. Oh, we'll we'll see this again. This is kind of interesting. Let's go check this out. But the response of the demon is panic that results in immediate obedience to the very command that Jesus gives him. We begin to see their panic as it comes out with a loud scream. The text says here that he cried out with a loud voice. Literally, he screamed loudly. He screamed loudly. I said to you before, and I'll say it again, this is the demon screaming. This is the demonic realm screaming about Jesus from the body of this man because of the presence of Jesus Christ. He heard what Jesus said, but he's more... Fearful of the fact that Jesus is there. That's why he says what he says. Why do demons scream in the presence of Jesus Christ? Well, let me give us a few reasons. They scream at the presence of the living gospel because the absolute authority of his spoken word. Let me say that again. They scream, the demonic realm, the the realm of darkness screams loudly at the presence of Jesus Christ because of the authority of His spoken Word. In other words, the demonic realm fully understands just who Christ is. 
And because they understand who Christ is, they immediately understand that when Christ speaks, His words are absolute authority and they must be done. In other words, the forces of darkness understand truth, beloved. They understand truth. And when truth speaks, the powers of darkness cannot be silent. This is why it says in Philippians chapter 2 at the end of the age that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To those who are under the earth, in the earth, above the earth, all of created order and all of created humanity will bow and will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? They must. They must. They cannot be silent. Why? Because truth accepts no compromise. Truth accepts no compromise. Truth is unbending. Truth will not equivocate. And so when Christ speaks, when truth himself is there, all the demonic realm here is divine authority. When Christ speaks, it's divine authority. This isn't suggestive. This is declarative. This is the one who rules over them in the ultimate sense, and their response cannot be stopped. It is spontaneous. Turn just really quickly over to Luke or John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is just interesting to me. This is a parallel. Not in that it's about the demonic realm, but it's about the heart of man. We'll start in verse 16. We know it well. For God so loved the world... He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There's the essence in a nutshell of the Gospel, right? Jesus is the only way. Because God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, you reject the Son, you reject salvation, you reject God. I mean, it's that easy. It's a simple equation. Well, what's the judgment? Well, this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Now, there's the heart of man in a picture. Men love the darkness. They love the realm that is untruth rather than truth. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Doesn't come to the light. Why? Because their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God or produced by God or born in God. This is the heart of man. Reject God. Reject the light. Don't come to the light. I don't want to have anything to do with the light. You see Jesus speaking in the synagogue. The heart of man is showing itself for what it is. We don't want to have anything to do with the light. Even in his own hometown, they wanted to kill him. We want nothing to do with you. Get out of here. We will rule ourselves, and yet here is those in the demonic realm who must and spontaneously respond to the light as their darkness is exposed, and they cry out with a loud voice exactly who Jesus is. Know this, beloved, know this. Behind every refusal to embrace the absolute truth of Jesus Christ is the prince of the power of the air and his minions who are spinning the lies that are embraced as truth. Man's heart loves the darkness. Don't go away from here saying that, that I'm saying that every person is demon-possessed. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is behind that system is the demons and Satan himself. And the heart loves it. The reason people hate the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is because the gospel accepts no rival. No other rival. It is the only way. Because of the authority of the word of Christ, the demons tremble with fear. Why? Because divine authority is a terrifying authority. Let that sink in a little bit. This is implications for us. Divine authority is a terrifying authority. You say, how terrifying should that be in my own heart? Well, here's how Jesus told his disciples to think about it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Don't fear that. Don't fear the things of circumstance, the things of the world, the things that can take your physical life. That's, that's certainly could be frightening, but don't fear it in such a way that it causes you to do all this strange stuff. Rather, fear Him who's able to destroy both your soul and body in hell. That's the reverent fear you ought to have. Fear God. The demonic realm understands that principle. They understand that. They're permanently in their rebellion. They cannot be saved. They will spend an eternity in hell themselves. James 2.19 clearly says, you believe in God, that's great. You, you believe in God, good. You believe God is one even. You believe in a trinity, though, that's great. You believe in that. You do well. Guess what, James says, the demons, they believe that and they tremble at that. In other words, the demons quake with fear because they truly understand the authority of the Word of God. They understand that when God speaks, they must listen. So is it only the demons who should tremble? I hope your answer is no. All of us should tremble at the living Word of God. When we're confronted with the truth of Christ, when we're confronted with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, it ought to cause us to tremble if we will not obey it. Far too often we play fast and loose with God's Word. Far too often it's too floaty for us. It isn't rigid enough. It's not objective enough. We place it in the side of suggestion rather than declarative reality. And we end up in this zone of amazement where there's no fear of God in our eyes. Many a professed God follower in Capernaum is like that. Many professed Christians today are like those in Capernaum. They're amazed at Christ, but not reverently fearful at what He says. The demons are, first of all. Secondly, secondly, the demons cannot help but scream because of the absolute authority of the holiness of the living gospel. The holiness of the living gospel. Notice verse 34. Ha, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is what light does. Like it, light exposes that which is in darkness, that which is darkness, and evil runs. Why? Because it cannot endure the scrutiny of the light. That's what John 3 says. Men run from the light because it doesn't want to have its deeds exposed. And so here is the personification of the gospel. Here is the living gospel in the presence of this man. And the holiness of Christ is on display He's speaking about himself. He's talking with authority concerning himself. And the unclean spirits can do nothing else but believe that this is the day of final judgment. They're not omniscient. They don't know when that day will come. They know it's coming, but they don't know the exact timing of it. And here they are wondering, is this that day? Have you come to destroy us? And the us 
not only means them, but also all who don't believe upon Jesus. Us. All of us. All that are in darkness. He isn't acting alone. This demon's not there acting alone. He's simply representative of the entire fallen band of demonic forces that are just like him. But he's also representative of the humanity that willfully reject the gospel. The demonic realm is already confirmed in their disobedience. They cannot be saved. The light of Christ is just exposing that. They're always waiting for this day, the day of destruction. And here is Christ in their midst, power on display, authority being spoken. And it's His utter holiness that causes them to ask in their horror, have you come? Is this the day? Have you come to destroy us? Is this the day that we know we're waiting for? I mean, this guy has tuned everybody else out. It's just him and Jesus now. The demon is speaking. Hey, is this the day, Jesus? I mean, you talk about revelatory to all those who are there. You talk about Jesus speaking with authority. This demon is revealing things about Jesus as these people never thought was true. And it's interesting to me, I hope we don't miss the irony of what is being said here, even in the words of Luke. We have to realize that while much of the redeemable part of God's creation, i.e., you and I as humans, we are the redeemable part of creation. Right? All creation groans waiting for the day of redemption for us, it says in Romans. The rest of the the unanimated world, the trees and the flowers and the dirt and the rocks and the water and all that kind of stuff, the sky and all that is waiting for us to be redeemed so it can be returned back to the glory it once had. The demonic realm cannot have that. They are the unredeemable part. Here is the redeemable part of creation not bowing to Christ. And yet the unredeemable part of God's creation, the demons, and Satan himself know who he is. They cannot help but verbally declare who he is to everybody. Those who should be declaring who he is want to reject him, and those who know who he is and cannot be saved are declaring just who he is. Satan and his minions cannot stand in the presence of Christ without screaming and proclaiming his identity. And because of that, we're reminded that one day, as I said, every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow. They won't be able to help it. There will be no amazement about Christ in that day. There will be only terror. The demons know of Christ's holiness. And so he screams out about that. You are the Holy One of God. So the demons cry out because of the authority of Christ's spoken word. They cry out because of the holiness of Christ who is the living word. And thirdly, they cry out because of the absolute authority of his power, his ability, his dunamis. We cannot be confused about this and think that the words of Christ here our prescriptions for us as believers today is if we can go around and do what Jesus did and rebuke demons. Luke is not telling us by revealing what Jesus did in his ministry that we are to be like Christ in this way and go around commanding and rebuking demons. No, this is Christ's authority as the living gospel. This is descriptive of his power and his ability. He's the one who has the ability. He's the only one who has the ability to exercise demons. And for a time, he gave that ability to some of his disciples. We know them as the apostles. So he briefly delegated that for a time, but it's not for today. 
Those charlatans who say they're casting out demons are just that. They're charlatans. They're liars. You know how we know that? Because only Jesus has that power. So we are nowhere commanded in Scripture. We're not even loosely suggested in Scripture to command demons to do anything. In fact, Ephesians 6 simply tells us to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's it. We have the Word of God. We stand against that. We resist. So when Christ rebukes this demon, and then he says to him, be silent. Be silent. What is Christ doing? Well, he's showing his divine power. He has power over the demonic realm. No one else had that. None of the other teachers had that. No one could do that. And furthermore, it's proof of his power and ability because he says to the demon, look, you need to be silent and come out of him. And the demon does exactly that. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't say, yeah, I'll get to it next week. He doesn't say, when I have time, I'll come and follow you. I'll do what you said. No, the demon does exactly what Jesus says. He leaves the man. It's only the absolute authority of Christ's power. That's what made that happen. So the authority of his power is on display. He not only has the power, the exousia, he has the ability to do it. The demon, in essence, is saying to himself, the king has come. The ruler is here. He has the power to do what he says. Think about that. Think about that in Jesus Christ. Think about that in our own salvation. The king has come. He has the power, beloved, to transfer us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Paul said to the Colossian believers, This is Christ who does that. This is the power on display. This is gospel power. It has to be that way, doesn't it? It has to be that way. This would be a far different thing if the demon in some kind of way resisted in any sense, in even a smallest sense, the things that Jesus was telling him to do. we We would sit and we would have to read this and go, well, if that's the case, then does Jesus have the power and ability to save me? I mean, it has to be this way because if Christ is going to rescue us, if Christ is going to take us sinners from the prince of the power of the air, if he's going to snatch us out of the domain of darkness, if he's going to rescue us as those people who are under the slavery and domain of darkness and transfer us into the domain of light, then he better have the power and ability to do it. He better be powerful enough to crush the head of the serpent. Well, that power is on display right here. Right here with the people of Capernaum. And yet Jesus will later say of those people in Capernaum, it'll be worse for you in the day of judgment than it would be for Sodom. Because you rejected me. Beloved, that is Luke's desire in the beginning of the ministry of Christ. That you and I would grasp in our understanding, in our heart, the authority of Christ. That Christ has the authority to defeat all the forces of evil and sin. And the proof of that authoritative power is that it happened. The demon throws the man down in their midst and comes out of that man. And I would think inherently within the words of Jesus Christ, be quiet and come out of him was the implied command. And don't you dare hurt that guy. Doesn't even do any harm to him. Sounds a lot like God's commands to Satan himself about Job. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and sift Job, but don't you do anything to his life. 
Text doesn't tell us where the demon went. We don't know, but he left. He left. Verse 36 says, And amazement came upon them all. Very understated statement. I mean, you saw this happen in the church in this moment as the teacher was speaking, and amazement comes over them all, you think? I mean, they're, they, they were terrified before because he spoke with authority. Now they're really terrified, and they're discussing with one another, what is this message? I mean, we've never heard anything like this, because with authority, exousia, and dunamis, he commands the unclean spirits, and they do it. They come out. There was universal intellectual acknowledgement of the power and authority of Christ. And yet, not all were believing. Not all are believing. News about Christ's authority as the living gospel is spreading everywhere. Verse 37, and the report about him was getting out to, into every locality in the surrounding district. I mean, as fast as the demon left, some people in that synagogue, whoosh, out they go, telling everybody, you got to, I mean, next week you got to come to the synagogue, man. This is crazy what's going on. They're amazed. You say, what's the point, Pastor? Well, here's the whole point. A lot of things said, Pull it down to this. Jesus has the absolute authority over all things. Therefore, when we hear Jesus speak in his word, and this is his word from Genesis to Revelation because he is the God of creation. When we hear the word of God speak, we must not simply be intellectually amazed at it. We cannot be like those in Capernaum that go, wow, this has some authority. So-and-so needs to hear this. No, we ought to respond similarly as the demon respond who can never be saved. We ought to tremble. Because he's the one who can cast our soul into hell. This is God himself. This is God himself. Here's how the prophet Isaiah recorded it. Isaiah chapter 66. To this one I will look. To him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. The demons tremble and obey. They're not saved. They must do what Jesus says. He is the ruler. Oh, I pray that God would help us have that same trembling obedience unto salvation and then unto sanctification. Now we'll see what he did next. Next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your word is so amazing to us. Lord, we know that when we know Jesus Christ by faith, we are secure in him. Nothing can snatch us from your hand. Not even the sad reality that we sin. Even after we're saved, how sad that is for us. We know that this side of heaven, we will not and could not ever be perfect in practice. We know we are holy in your eyes only because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is holy. We know that you see us in him. We know that we have received all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places because of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for not hearing his word with trembling authority. That sometimes when we hear it, when we read it, we push it aside with amazement, but do not do it. We do not follow it. Father, impress upon us the authority of your word that we would see it for what it is. 
not dabble with it with some sense of casualness. Lord, thank You for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without the Gospel, we would not even know You at all. We would be in the world without You and without any hope. But You sent Your Son that He might save. Oh Lord, I pray for each one of us here that we have that knowledge, that understanding, the realization that our sin is only forgiven through the death, burial, and resurrection of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we repent of that, turn from it, embrace Christ by faith, and then walk in obedience to You. Lord, as we interact with one another, may we do what Your Word tells us, stimulate one another to greater love and good deeds, to live as Christ Set an example for others that is Christ-like in word and attitude. To be, as your word tells us, to be imitators of God. That others might see Christ. That they might wonder at the hope that lies within us. We could tell them about the joy of our life. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be faithful instruments in your hand, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.